All right. Uh, this is Give Me an Argument, uh, the uh, the call-in branch of the uh, Give Them an Argument media empire. Uh, and today, yeah, I should I should always start the show like that. I like that. In any case, uh, today I was just going to do a quick one where I talked through the article that I wrote for Jackman. Uh, well, not quite most recently, but the one that came out the most recently. There's another one on uh, Ukraine that uh, might even be coming out in the next couple of days. I'm not really sure what the schedule is. Uh, but in any case, uh, the one I, I want to talk about today is the one that came out today uh, that is uh, called Peter Thiel wants you to think he's an evil genius. He's just a rich guy. And this is one that uh, I was talking about it on this show on uh, Sunday. Um so I think at that point, um, I hadn't, I don't think I'd finished writing it yet at least, but I, I, I may have started. Uh, in any case, uh, I do owe Chase an apology because when he called in on, uh, on Sunday, uh, he asked really specifically whether uh, Rene Girard's influence on Teal was mentioned in the book. And I said, no, because I didn't remember that at all from the book. And then when I was actually working on the article, um, I, it's not exactly a book review. It's more of a, just kind of an opinion piece that talks about the book a little as a sort of jumping off point. But in any case, when I was working on it, you know, I went back to look up some key passages that I remembered from the book that I wanted to quote in the article. And ran into a couple paragraphs that I had completely forgotten about Rene Girard um, and his influence on Teal. Now, I will say in my defense that as far as I can recall or, you know, as, as far as I can tell by doing some quick search terms, uh, Girard doesn't come back up at all later in the book. And so there's this sort of brief description of Girard and there's this claim that he was this big influence on Teal's views about both business and politics. But uh, that influence is never really unpacked or explored later in the book, right? So it seems to be more like, oh yeah, he read Rene Girard in college and then, <laughs> you know, uh, there's allegedly some sort of meaningful influence later, but again, it's it's never really explored. Uh, I stand by my speculation in uh, in the discussion with Chase in the episode on Sunday that uh, this may just be an instance of Teal kind of being a poser. Um, I will uh, I will get to that. Uh, <laughs> um, I see. Yeah. Uh, also, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll get to Antonio's comment because uh, I've, I've stuff to say about that, too. Uh, but in any case, I'll be talking about the article itself. So, uh, you know, in the um, in kind of the opening section, you know, what I'm really talking about is one of the most vivid parts of the book, at least for me as a reader, which is the part where Chafkin is talking about Teal's experiences at Stanford, right? where he was an undergrad and then, you know, stuck around for law school, I think. Um, and I don't really get into this in the this part of the article, but quite a bit of the Stanford stuff is about how he started this publication called the Stanford Review, which was this kind of... Um, you know, it was it was not unlike 
sort of college age efforts that uh, friend of the show uh, James O'Keefe was involved in. Uh, I think the explicit inspiration was a newspaper at a different college that was launched by Dinesh D'Souza. There were, you know, at the kind of, you know, kind of in the era when he was doing all this, right? Teal's, you know, a little older than me, like maybe 10 years older than me. Um, there's, there were quite a few of these sort of anti-PC, nobody, you know, if the word woke, uh, well, might have been in circulation in certain black radical circles, but if the word woke had been used in the way that it's used now, they were certain, most certainly would have said anti-woke. I think back then, anti-PC, uh, conservative publications at various colleges that, you know, basically, um, like, to say that it was an attempt to, you know, like, it, it wasn't like they were trying to replicate the National Review or something. It was, like, maybe way more juvenile than that. Like, you know, that mostly it seems like the point of all these little magazines, you know, newspapers, I guess, at all these different colleges, you know, the one that Teal started at Stanford, the one that D'Souza started wherever he went, I forget. Um, you know, it's just like kind of to trigger the libs <laughs> uh, and, uh, and maybe also to give the, uh, you know, the editors and, and writers a sort of entree point into later conservative politics. So that's what a lot of the Stanford section is about, but that's not really what I focused on in, uh, in the, you know, in the article, what I was talking about Teal's years at Stanford, because instead what I really wanted to talk about there is just, uh, the way the sort of feel that you get from reading the Stanford part of the book. All right. They're, they're kind of like just sort of aesthetically like the, the picture that's being painted of Teal. Cause you know, like I said in the, in the article, like the sort of sense you get a teal from the details that Chafkin, you know, the author of the book, uh, the contrarian is the name of the book. I don't think I said that, uh, Peter Teal and it's the contrarian Peter Teal and Silicon Valley's pursuit of power. Although really it's, the book is not about, uh, Silicon Valley as a whole. I think that's a little bit misleading. Um, because there's really very little, like the only times that Zuckerberg really comes up uh, in the book are about Zuckerberg's relationship to Teal. The, uh, the only times that, um, you know, other tech companies come up or when, you know, they're either rivals of Teal and his various enterprises, or he's invested in them, or I guess in the, uh, uh, or he's criticizing them. Right, so he's been a big critic of Google, or he's, um, or he's sort of using them to bemoan how we don't have the techno utopian future he wants. So one of his favorite lines uh, that he's used a couple of different contexts is the thing about how we were promised flying cars and what we got was 140 characters, um, which is a kind of funny thing to say because I mean I was talking about this with uh, Nathan Robinson earlier today and you know he pointed out it's like look motherfucker you know not that that's the way that nathan put it but essentially right look motherfucker uh if you want to be this genius tech innovator why don't you go innovate right why aren't you out there designing flying cars or you know i mean god at least elon musk is incompetent as a lot of it is right at least he's you know at least he's in the business of like producing electric cars and you know spaceships and whatever um 
you're in the business of what, right? Being a middleman on financial transactions with PayPal. I mean, his, uh, like, since getting the initial money from PayPal, you know, Teal's best investment in a business sense. Uh, and one of the things that made it most important was, you know, help was invest into Facebook, right? <laughs> you know, so it's a little weird that he's he's promoting the, you know, uh, we got 140 characters instead of uh, instead of flying cars. Um, but in any case, um, you know, I was talking about Stanford and I was talking about, uh, you know, how the, the part, you know, even though in Chafkin's book, uh, he's got all of this stuff about Teal's time at Stanford. A lot of it's about the Stanford review and the sort of anti PC antics that they were involved in. Um, you know, what I focused on is the way that a lot of the sort of details that Chafkin puts together in that chapter paint this picture of Teal that the way I put it in the article is it reminds me uh, of nothing so much but like a comic book, right? It's really specifically what it makes me think of is it's like it would be, you know, the issue of a comic book that's devoted to this flashback about the supervillain's backstory, Right. Uh, that, you know, you see, Mr. Kent, the time that the doomsday device, you know, the idea for the doomsday device first blossomed in my mind. I was at Stanford and, you know, that's that's what a lot of it feels like. Right. So there's a lot in there about how he played chess all the time, how much he loves speed chess and the way that Shafkin writes about young Teal uh, playing chess sort of. um you know, sort of feeds into this idea that chess is this like super intellectual endeavor, which is what, you know, Antonio is kind of mentioned in his, uh, his comment, by the way, uh, Antonio, the comments, uh, says, um, uh, the image that playing chess means you're smart as a person who loves wasting time on chess. I've never really felt much of a need to correct people on this, uh, too emphatically, but I got to say, I don't see how people can buy into it. I think Alex Coburn actually has a book, that's kind of about this, right? I believe, uh, now I haven't read it. I just heard David Griskin describe it, but, I, um, but I believe Alex Coburn at one point, was it like he had a publisher where he had to come out with a book once every certain number of years. And so he wrote one of them just about chess and like basically tried to debunk that idea that like chess is this really, you know, elevated intellectual pursuit. That means that you're probably a genius if you're good at it. Um, which, uh, which sounds like a good book to check out, but in any case, uh, so there's all this stuff about how much Teal, Teal played, you know, speed chess at the coffee house in Stanford. Uh, there's a line in, you know, in the book where Chafkin talks about, you know, how he was absorbing all the lessons of the intense cerebral game. Um, there's, um, there's stuff about his extreme right-wing political views, of course, um, uh, like, you know, Teal actually, uh, for a while, his, his dad was an engineer who worked for a mining company in apartheid, South Africa and Namibia. Uh, and, um, and so there's stuff in the Stanford parts of the book where they're talking about, you know, Chafkin is talking about how, you know, there are a couple of students who recalled arguing with Teal about South Africa and he'd make these kind of arguments that like, oh, well, 
you know, sure, we could cry about human rights, but um, South Africa under apartheid, you know, you know, it works, right, is what he said, right? Meaning that the level of economic development was so much higher in South Africa than other African countries that, you know, it's um, that, you know, that it's it's silly to, to make too much of a big deal about uh, the human rights issues. And anyway, lots of those other countries have human rights issues. Why should we divest from South Africa, uh, et cetera, right? So, uh, so there's that. And then there's uh, my personal favorite uh, incident in the, uh, in the Stanford chapters because it's such a parody of like what a young libertarian would say. I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing that somebody like me would, would like make up to make fun of them. Uh, which is the incident where uh, Stanford, you know, Teal, while he's at Stanford, he's uh, giving some of his buddies a ride to a chess tournament down this, like, four-lane highway that goes across the mountains, right? This is in Southern California. And uh, they're... Uh, and, um, and there's a... And Teal is, like, driving like a maniac, Right, he's he's cutting people off. He's weaving back and forth between lanes. He's barely avoiding accidents. Finally, the California Highway Patrol pulls him over, and he starts ranting to the traffic cop about how um, about how how uh, traffic laws are probably unconstitutional in any way that definitely infringe on liberty. You know, so, um, you know, which which kind of sums up everything about Teal and those two things, right? That's like, well, you know, let's not be let's not be so precious about liberty that we're objected to apartheid. But, you know, traffic laws, that's too much, right? That's too much of an infringement on liberty, um, which, you know, I, I, I would argue gets to some of his incoherence. More on that in a minute. Uh, but, you know, something about the combination of talking about the Rene Girard stuff, right? These sort of obscure intellectual influences and talking about, you know, his like bizarre ultra reactionary political views like on South Africa and talking about how much he loves speed chess and how he was absorbing all the lessons of this intense cerebral game uh, and talking about how he was like the kind of person who would tell a traffic cop that he rejected his authority. Uh, again, all does sort of sound like, you know, Lex Luthor, the college years, right? That's the, uh, that's the impression that it all kind of conveys. And the reason that I want to start the article this way is because it got into the sort of core point that I wanted to make about Teal, which I think feeds into a larger point about how to think about the right wing, how to, how to write about the right wing, right? How to argue against the right wing. Cause you know, as you might imagine this is something I spent a lot of my time thinking about, right? Like, you know, the original segment I had at the Michael Brooks show was called the debunk. And, you know, it wasn't always about taking apart right wing arguments, but that was the kind of, you know, bread and butter of that segment as the, uh, as the name indicates, uh, even before the debunk, I was doing a lot of that kind of thing uh, for, you know, the weekly videos that I used to do for the zero books, YouTube channel. That's what my first book is about a lot. And that's what, you know, this, this sort of, you know, the writing that I'm producing, you know, to this day, right. You know, is, is a lot of it is about that. That's, that's kind of the bread and butter of it, right. It's, it's thinking about debunking the right. We need a kind of propaganda war against the right. You know, I, I do debates with right wingers all the time. So this is all of which is just to say, this is something that's really on my radar. And part of the reason I wrote the article is an increasing sense that there's 
the way a lot of left media covers the right is sort of misguided for a couple reasons, but the sort of primary reason I'm concerned with is because I think it actually, there's a danger that it actually feeds into the right's preferred branding. Um, That, like, you actually feed into the image that people like Peter Thiel want to project for themselves. Um, Because let's really think about the image that Peter Thiel wants to project for himself. Because, uh, like, there's a fair amount of evidence to work with here, you know, as far as uh, uh, as far as you know the the statements that he's made over the years, the press, the speeches he's given, you know, the lectures and debates he's done, you know, or you know, not that he's done a lot of debates, but he did do one with uh, David Graeber. I'm actually, I think I'm actually going to do a Thursday night debate breakdown on that with uh, Rob Larson on. Uh, September 1st, I think is when we're going to do that. So a few, a few weeks, but, um, in any case, like if you look at it, it kind of seems to me that this like enigmatic, mysterious, evil genius, supervillain kind of image is how he likes to present himself, right? That a lot of this is, you know, it's not that he's not evil. I actually think he's extremely evil. And it's not even that he's not dangerous. I think there is a certain way in which he's very dangerous. We'll get into that. But I don't know. Again, I I brought up in the call-in on Sunday the the analogy to Steve Bannon, right? When Steve Bannon talks about, you know, deconstructing the uh, administrative state, which, uh, which sounds sort of mysterious and kind of creepy and a little bit like, you know... (laughs) but also somehow a little bit like Foucault. Um, and then you actually take a, a beat to think about that. It's like, well, what does that mean, deconstructing the administrative state? Doesn't that just mean what other Republicans mean by deregulation? And, you know, if you watch, I'm sure some people have heard me bring this up before, you know, if you watch Steve Bannon's uh, debate back in, uh, when was this, 2019, I think, with um, maybe very early 2020, with David Frum, uh, who's, you know, the guy who wrote George W. Bush's Axis of Evil speech, making Frum himself, from my perspective, a very evil person, uh, but who's also a big, you know, never Trumper, right? You know, like he um, he was something of a resistance hero uh, when Trump was president. Like, you watch this debate they did. It was the, you know, the monk, you know, it was a monk debate in Toronto, right? So it's the super prestigious kind of debate. And, like, if you actually pay close attention to that debate, they don't really disagree that much, right? Like, you know, Bannon throws a bunch of rhetoric at from about salt of the earth, working class deplorables, you know, the forgotten people. And and then from throws a lot of rhetoric at Bannon, insinuating that Bannon is a fascist. And, but, like, there's very little policy talk in that whole debate, which always made sense to me because it's like, yeah, they're both Republicans. They probably support like 90% of the same policies, more than that. Um, even if, you know, Bannon probably would go further in terms of cruelty towards immigrants and Muslims. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, even that, I suspect, would be a matter of degree. And certainly on most other subjects, I think they would see eye to eye. So, 
you know, there's this sort of danger, you know, like, and the contrast I always make with that uh, Bannon from Monk debate is to, um, you know, when Bannon was on the Red Scare podcast, uh, you know, a few months later, I think. And, you know, whatever. I don't, um, you know, I, I think that in, uh, I think especially sort of post Bernie, uh, you know, the Red Scare girls have, you know, have drifted a direction I'm not wild about politically, you know, um, you'll, you'll see their names come up in, uh, in articles about Peter Thiel, in fact. Um, but, you know, I, I suspect that especially the recent drift in the last, you know, like I, you know, I talked to one of them, Dasha, on the main show on YouTube, like, trying to remember when like late 2020 maybe even early 2021 and she still said a fair about a number of leftist things then but i suspect that she's gone in a very different direction since then i wouldn't claim to have paid a lot of attention to them so i might be wrong about that but that's my impression but you know put that aside right whatever you think about red scare i always like the point that michael brooks made at the time right which is that he said look he was happy that Bannon was on Red Scare because the effect, you know, he said, look, I don't know how, I don't know how Anna and Dasha, you know, sort of conceptualized what they were doing. Right. But how, whatever it was that they thought they were doing, the effect was to make Bannon look like a ridiculous poser, right? Because they were actually to their credit, right. They were really pressing him on a really obvious point, which is if you're such a populist, why don't you support Medicare for all? And he was super evasive about it. He did not have a good answer to that, right? And I think that's kind of the right way to handle people like Bannon. And the same way that Bannon has this kind of Prince of Darkness branding going on, right? That's like, oh, he's so dark, he's so edgy. I think some of the same is true about Peter Thiel. And so, you know, I quote in the article, in fact, there was one point, you know, my originally submitted headline, you know, when I submit articles to Jacobin, I always put a suggested headline on it and, you know, sometimes they go with it and sometimes they don't, you know, at least half the time they probably don't and probably a hundred percent of the time that I use headlines like this. Uh, cause I, sometimes I just submit a headline, this register just in case they go with it. Cause I think it'd be awesome. So my originally submitted headline for this piece was, uh, Peter Thiel is a garbage human being, uh, you know, which is a little blunter than what they went with. Um, uh, but, uh, and, you know, what they went with was the, you know, Peter Thiel wants you to think he's an evil genius, he's just a rich guy, which is very accurate for the thesis of the article. But in between, I think the title was actually just this quote, right, which is in the book in which I quoted the article, which is, you know, from um, the Bush years when Peter Thiel was really promoting Palantir as something that could be useful to government surveillance, Right, it's a business he started. It doesn't exactly run, but like he, you know, has a continuing major interest in it, and it's, you know, it's not, it's not, and it's still kind of his business to some extent. Um, the uh, and he was like really promoted that and trying to get a government contracts and all that stuff, which is also, you know, worth taking a beat on, right? Libertarian who constantly has his hand out for government contracts, but um, in the uh, you know, in this part of the book, right, he's describing how, um, like, there was a magazine cover 
about the um, about Palantir, where the headline was "Meet Big Brother." You know, civil libertarians were horrified because, like, Teal was going around making comments about how, you know, uh, he thought Palantir could be so useful for you know war on terror surveillance purposes, and he thought even under Bush the government was being too squeamish about privacy. Again, also very libertarian. Uh, but uh, in any case, the in the discussion with an anonymous friend who's quoted in the book, supposedly Teal said that he didn't mind all of the Big Brother publicity about Palantir. He said, I'd rather be seen as evil than incompetent. And to my mind, that that line is incredibly revealing, right, about who Peter Thiel is and why he presents himself in this certain light, right? Because there's this kind of dark, edgy branding that's like, oh, people think he's this interesting, you know, maybe dangerous genius. And it's like, no, he's not. He's a dumb, rich guy. Now, that doesn't mean he's not dangerous. I think think dumb, rich people could actually be incredibly dangerous. We'll get to that. But, um, But it does mean that, like, you should take all this with a grain of salt, right? So... Like when he talks, you know, he talks up seasteading, um, you know, right, building human colonies on the ocean floor, which he's presented as like a libertarian political strategy, even uh, like to avoid taxation and regulation that, you know, they should just go, you know, relocate to the ocean floor. Uh, so, you know, there's the seasteading, there's the we were promised flying cars, we got 140 character stuff. Uh, he's talked up this uh, life extension technique where as people are aging, they get blood transfusions from younger donors, um, which it doesn't even seem like he's personally done. But like he made a point of telling a reporter that he thought it was, was very interested and, you know, and he's he's funded some research into it and he might incorporate it into his personal health regime. And I just read all this and I think, OK, Peter Thiel is the kind of guy who who likes the idea that you might think that he's injected himself with the blood of the young as part of his strategy to beat aging and death, right? I mean, this is a guy who kind of enjoys the supervillain image of himself. But I think that feeding into that with articles about him that are just sort of pure alarmism is exactly the wrong way to combat his influence. I think a way better way to combat his influence and I know this is like kind of predictable coming from me, but you know, I, I think it is correct uh, is to point out the disconnect between the way all these politicians that he bankrolls, you know, your JD Vance's, your uh, Blake masters Blake masters, by the way, comes up all over this book because he was, you know, Teal's big protege and employee and all this stuff. So your JD Vance's, your Blake masters is your um, Josh Howley's right. That was a, teal protege who's already in the senate um you know the disconnect between the way these people present themselves and the fact that they're being funded by fucking peter teal right like these guys all want to portray themselves as being these populists who are going to stand up to the establishment on behalf of the ordinary people who've been forgotten and you know deindustrialization and the opioid crisis and all that stuff but it's like look if these people were actually going to stand up to the power of elite interests and maybe even, you know, take some of the hoarded wealth of the elite and use it to help ordinary people, why the fuck would this 
ultra elitist, right? This billionaire Peter Thiel be spending some of his hoarded wealth on electing them to office. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and, and this, in fact, you know, as I've talked about before on the show, if you start digging into any of these people's campaign websites, even you very quickly find out that they're about as populist as well. The libertarian Silicon Valley billionaire who finances them, right? None of those people are in favor of universal health care or universal child care or even raising the minimum wage. Right? They, there's absolutely nothing objectively positive, populist in the positive sense about them. Um, so I think that's like, I think pointing out stuff like that is a way more useful way of fighting back against the influence of somebody like Peter Thiel. Right? Don't feed into the Prince of Darkness branded exercise, but point out that he's a bullshit artist. Right? That that like point out that all of these people he's funding and propping up are charlatans who don't stand for anything like what uh he's presenting them as standing for. And I know that some people on the left I mean, even though you know, I don't mention anybody on the left in the article, I mean the you know, Max Shafkin is a Bloomberg uh, business columnist. I don't. I don't think he's a huge leftist. Um, and in fact, there's a not super flattering reference to Michael Brooks in this book. Uh, you know, so that's another indication he's probably not a huge leftist. Um, but in any case, like, I know there's some people on the left who don't like the sort of approach to writing about and trying to poke some holes in the image of. Uh, people like Bannon and Teal that I've been adv- I advocated the article and in what I've been saying in the episode so far about the article. Um, so Eric Dreitzer, I might be mispronouncing that, but he's an editor at Counterpunch, which ironically is uh, where I started out uh, way back in uh, 2015. Um, you know, between 2015 and like 2017. I wrote a handful of articles for Counterpunch, uh, which are the uh, almost the first political articles that I ever wrote. Certainly, the only ones that weren't in, in like even more obscure, you know, like even more obscure socialist publications. Um, but they don't like me there anymore. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my favorite, you know, like there was a uh, there's a guy. Andrew Stewart, who wrote a, an article in Counterpunch about my Hitchens book, where he admitted that he had read the book, but he was still mad that I'd written it because he was like, nobody should write about Hitchens anymore. Uh, so uh, this this Counterpunch art editor, Eric Dreitzer, I think, um, had has been posting on, all over social media today about how I'm like whitewashing Peter Thiel, which is, you know, Insane. I mean, I guess the idea is because I'm not writing about him in this sort of like he's this fascist mastermind sense. I'm writing about him in this. This is this rich guy who um, who wants to make the world safe for plutocracy sense. Right. In other words, I think the kind of danger that's posed by Peter Thiel, which is a very real danger. This is the point I want to end on. If anybody wants to call in, ask a question, um, make a comment share your thoughts just get in the queue right now because otherwise we'll probably wrap up in the next couple minutes but um like i think this is not a one-to-one comparison by any means right 
Like, there are obviously important differences, including ideological differences between these guys. But I think that the kind of danger that somebody like Peter Thiel poses to the world, and I do think he poses a danger, and I don't think the phrase to the world is an exaggeration. I think I think it's, like, carefully chosen. <laughs> but I think the uh, I think the kind of danger that somebody like Peter Thiel poses to the world is less like the image that you get from some of this stuff and closer to the kind of danger. And again, I don't think this is hyperbole. I think this is exactly right. That somebody like Charles Koch poses to the world. All right. Because if you think about all of Teal's ideological zigzags, right? that like, you know, in, you know, for much of his life, he's branded himself as a libertarian, but, you know, he, but he also thought that, you know, the war on terror hadn't gone far enough and George W. Bush was too, too squeamish about uh, privacy rights. Uh, in 2012, after all that, right, uh, you know, he was back to being a super libertarian. He was all in on, on the Ron Paul campaign and ended up being one of the major donors to at least, like, I think, like a PAC that was supporting that campaign. So he was big on 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 Ron Paul, and remember um, remember Ron Paul was combining sort of typical grotesque libertarian domestic policies with some actually really good stuff on foreign policy. Like when we started talking about foreign policy, sometimes Ron Paul sounded like Noam Chomsky, but then. So that was supposedly Teal's platform in 2012, but then 2016, he was a Trump delegate to the Republican National Convention. Remember, Trump not only did not sound like Ron Paul on foreign policy, but uh, but he had um, uh, but he said he was he would quote bomb the shit out of them unquote that he said he was going to have a, a total ban on all Muslims entering the United States. He said he was going to not only torture terrorists, but torture their family members. Um, that, you know, but somehow that didn't, you know, somehow I guess he was good with that by then. And um, and now, you know, he's the billionaire sugar daddy of all of these alleged populists. Um, you know, these people who supposedly want pro-working class industrial policy. You know, these Vance's, Masters, Masters's and uh, uh, Howley's. So what's consistent in all those zigs and zags? Well, I would submit that what's consistent in all those zigs and zags is that A, Teal wants to enrich himself, right? So like with the Palantir example or his attempts to, you know, get in with like, you know, that like one of his companies could do stuff for the deportation force that Trump was starting to talking about starting. Uh, and two, I think the consistent thread, I mean, once you look behind the the sort of bullshit about themselves that, you know, these J.D. Vance, Blake Masters, uh, Josh Howley types uh, put out there, I think the consistent thread is pretty straightforward, right? That all of these people, all of the, you know, or Curtis Yarvin, who's the self-described monarchist, <laughs> so uh, who, uh, who, uh, who Teal has patronized. Um, it's like, okay, there are all these things that are not in common between the politicians, thinkers, and writers that 
Teal has extended his favor to. But one thing that is in common with almost all of them is that um, is that they want to make the world safe for plutocrats, right? They they want a government that's even more servile to the economic interests of the one percent. You know, Teal's way of putting that would be you know the free market than it already is. Um, and I actually think there could be nothing more dangerous than that, right? Because this is the agenda that is doing more damage in the world today than any other, right? This is like every step we get closer. I say in the article to fulfilling these kinds of policy preferences that people like Charles Koch or David, when he was still alive, people like Peter Thiel, people like, you know, Sheldon Edelstein, when he was still alive, people like the Mercer family, every step we get closer to implementing this vision, right? then economic inequality, which is the primary source of avoidable human misery in the world today, gets worse. Ecological destruction, which threatens the entire planet, gets more severe. Um, and the world gets less livable. I can't imagine anything more, you know, like I can. I mean, I can imagine all sorts of things, but like realistically, right? This is the most dangerous thing in the world. So the point is not to whitewash Teal or say it's not dangerous. He is fucking dangerous. Same way that, you know, Charles Koch, and again, there are real differences. Charles Koch actually has non-evil positions on a few issues, and I don't think that's really true of Peter Teal. But um, the, uh, you know, I mean, he's a married gay man who won't even stick up for gay marriage, you know, but uh, but like... In terms of the core of their activities, right? I think that they're all dangerous in that way. And I think that's the way to talk about the danger they pose that doesn't feed into their bullshit about themselves. Okay. Um, I We have, I think, four callers. So I don't know if we're going to get to all of them. I have to go on uh, David the David Feldman show at 630. But I'm going to try to take as many as possible. So uh, let's try to do these in like kind of three to five minutes each, just so we can, just so we can uh, do as many people as possible. Um, I'm actually uh, just for the sake of getting in as many people as possible. Um, I I do want to get to Chase, see what he has to say because we have uh, we had a conversation about this a little bit on Sunday, but I want to start with somebody who I did not talk to then. So let's uh, start with Adam and again, try to do this in kind of three to five minutes each so we can get to, if not everybody, then almost everybody. Adam, what's on your mind? All right. And you see the little uh, unmute button. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me now? I can. Oh, perfect. Uh, yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, so from listening to like left-wing history-ish uh, sources, like for example, something like a podcast like Blowback, it seems like in the past that like billionaires were more focused, heading down like a stream together or had a general direction. Uh. Yes, there was competition, but overall more unified. Now it seems there's like a great game kind of aspect to modern billionaires. Do you think like that's a uh, valid observation or am I just seeing things that aren't there like uh, from like some survivor bias or something? No, I think that might be right. I mean, depending on, on what you mean, but I, I think there is probably an element of truth to that. I mean, I think the way that, um, 
I'm all, and I'm always a little hesitant to say things like this because it's like, you know, then somebody who knows more about like other specific eras of history is going to come but come down and say no 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 but what about this what about that right but like if we're just talking about my impressions right then i would say yeah i, I think i do know what you mean right like somebody like well somebody like peter Thiel, right like will um like just hates the shit out of google and like did like a kind of public debate with the google ceo and uh and there's even this weird like i don't know i feel like maybe um, just how absurdly like wealth is amassed with some of these guys might lead into a little bit of that great game stuff you're talking about. Like, um, uh, you know, I mean, like, cause it really is getting just particularly absurd, right? I mean, we are veering towards the point where the top slot in the distributive hierarchy isn't even going to be billionaires anymore. It's going to be trillionaires. And, yeah. uh, and you have this kind of weird dystopian, like reenactment of the space race, but now it's not countries. It's like individual billionaires, you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. That's, that's why I was making the great game kind of analogy that, like, they've kind of replaced that, uh, I don't know, like, the, the medium of how the game's played kind of. Yeah, I think, I think that's really perceptive. Okay. Um, Jonathan, what's on your mind? Are you with us, Jonathan? Yeah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I just wanted to say that I don't know what you think he does to the system is more like a Charles Coker, an actual evil's genius. It's more just the adding of noise to the system is the same from everybody. And there's never been a shorter distance between the good and the evil than there is now because it doesn't matter whether you're good or evil. It just matters that you're wrong and the good wrong people and the evil wrong people add the same amount of noise to the system through which no one can hear or discern anything. And it's just like most of the people don't see themselves as the villain. And I don't think this guy sees himself as the villain either. When he goes to sleep at night, he doesn't like, Oh, what am I doing? Even if he weren't, you know, I don't think he's a sociopath. I don't think he like, like he thinks what he's doing is the right thing. Just like the, when my mayor of my town, who was on my door to canvas for himself, talks about, uh, quote, revitalizing the neighborhood. He's describing gentrification without saying it, but he thinks what he's doing is the right thing. He's a nice guy. He's a good father. He takes out the recycling. But he's wrong. And he gets to decide where he gets to give the biggest developer in town $3 million a year, just like his predecessor did, just like every mayor of every municipality from coast to coast does, because they've never had any other ideas. None of them have ever had any other ideas than making landlords richer. They're like, well, if we don't gentrify, there's nothing else to. We have to have some gentrification. Like, public ownership of publicly funded things has never occurred to them, ever. Not once. Yeah. Yeah, it's wrong, and good and evil. It doesn't matter. Like they're adding a bunch of wrongness at the same volume. And right. That's all of them. That's what he does to the system. Yeah, I, I think there's. I think there's definitely some truth to that. Uh, I'm. I'm going to uh, both for the sake of time because there's some static. I'm going to. I'm going to uh, go to the next caller. But before before I start talking to uh, to Chase, I just wanted to say, like, I, I think there's a lot of truth to what the last caller is saying. I think. I tend to actually assume as a default 
that most people convince are good at convincing themselves that whatever's in their interests is, uh, you know, good for humanity as a whole. Um, you know, that like Brezhnev probably believed that everything that he was doing was advancing the cause of global socialism that, uh, uh, that, you know, that, that, I don't know, Donald Rumsfeld convinced himself he was spreading freedom to the world and, you know, and, and whatever. Right. You know, but, um, I, I do think, and, you know, and maybe even with Peter Thiel, right? Like, oh, there's going to be some collateral damage, but it's ultimately worth it. Cause we're going to get this wonderful science fiction future. Um, but you know, I still think it's driven, <laughs> you know, by a lot of like class interest and self-interest. And, uh, in the same way as your, your example about the mayor who's promoting, you know, gentrification and doesn't have any concept of public ownership and, you know, and wouldn't like it if he did. Right. Um, but I think that is consistent with the way that some people sort of relish the, uh, having a certain kind of dark and edgy persona. Right. Like even like, I don't know, like tanky kids on Twitter who like post about how awesome the gulags were and stuff like that. Like, yeah, they do think that they're on the right side and that like they're ultimately supporting a better socialist future. But like they also kind of enjoy the fact that they're horrifying people. And I think that there might be some of that going on with Peter Thiel, too. Okay, Chase, what's on your mind? Hey, Ben. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with your, uh, your point about trying to basically, uh, pop the balloon for the dark, edgy persona. I think it's, it's maybe useful to think about what distinguishes, uh, plutocrats that have some kind of, um, uh, popular base or cult of personality, um, and ones that don't like, I think about mm-hmm. how Michael Bloomberg tried to throw his money around to yes. buy himself a slot in the democratic primary and it just totally fell flat because it's Michael Bloomberg, you know? And, and like, I've long thought that like if Bezos had tried to run for president, um, or Bill Gates, um, he wouldn't have ever gotten nearly as far as say Trump. Oh, I think know? that's, I think that's um, totally right. I think that people like Bloomberg, um, got exactly the wrong lesson from Trump, right? They thought that he was able to do this because he was a billionaire, but it's like that really didn't have that much to do with it. I mean, Trump didn't even devote very much of his own money to his campaign, right? Like right. he was actually he was actually pretty cheap about it, right? I mean, the thing like the... Yeah, printed a bunch of ball caps. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You know, so it's like the thing that like Trump's big advantage wasn't that he had a lot of money. It's that he was a guy on TV. Right. Right. No. And I think, um, I think that's really, um, uh, when, when it comes to Teal, um, I, I think, you know, he has a, a little bit of the Elon Musk factor thing, you know, being like, uh, oh, I'm a, a eccentric sort of IDW, yeah. you know, uh, got like intellectual, but honestly, you know, I think what, like what weds him to the, uh, air quotes populist Republicans and what weds them to their base is, and this is like just a really oversimplified way to put it, but it's just like a kind of defensive prejudices, you know, up and down, like uh, the way in which uh, JD Vance is a populist to uh, his supporters is that, you know, he's not politically correct, whatever the fuck that means. And the way that uh, uh, Peter Thiel is, you know, seen as one of the good billionaires and not just a, a coastal elite 
and a gay man on top of it is that he's funding JD Vance. You know, um, there's just a lot of that naked hypocrisy. Good enough for me, but not for thee. Um, yeah, I, I think I think there's some. There. I think there's some truth to that. I mean, I would point out that Vance. Um, like Trump before him, right, does spend a lot of time signaling on economic issues, even though when you start to, like, actually, like, look at the fine print, there's nothing there, right? But it's like, yeah. you know, but, but like, they, you know, they like to talk a lot about deindustrialization, right, even if they don't yeah. really have a, have a solution to it. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's, I mean, I get what you're saying. I think that there's a, I think there's a lot of enemy of my enemy stuff, too, right? Because it's like, um if Teal gets to be one of the good ones, well, I mean, it's not even necessarily about his uh, positions on, like, his his actively sharing certain social prejudices. There's probably some of that. I mean, he doesn't seem to like women at all. That probably gets him some points, you know, but, like... Uh, I think he's also defended, like, the Charles Murray set of ideas around, like, race and tied to IQ intelligence and stuff. That seems very on brand. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. He, I I would actually. Uh, I don't specifically remember that from the book, but that would be the least surprising thing ever. You know, if he, uh, <laughs> if he had done that, you know. But um, but yeah, I mean, like, but I I also think a lot of it's like, look, I don't know. I mean, like, he's, you know, he's, you know, like, teal. I mean, you know, he's gay, he's married, he probably doesn't want to dissolve his marriage, although he seems to be totally fine with it, if that's collateral damage of his politics, you know, but, um, but like, I, I think that it's, I think that a lot of it's just that it's like, well, he's somebody who hates the libs, and so, like, if I hate the libs, how bad could he be? Yeah, no, I think, I think they're, I mean, I remember, um, uh, what was his name, uh, Myanopolis? What was his name? Giannis Milo. Um, uh, very, very uh, close. Milo, very close. Milo. Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah. Milo Yiannopoulos. You know who was uh, who was a darling for about six months on on the uh, 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 on on right wing media, um, even though yep. you know he was like bathing in pig's blood and all that stuff. Um, oh, totally. Yeah, like like that that he would like. Um, yeah, I mean, even though, right, he was he was a gay man who would, like, show up to, like, speaking events and, like, he would literally say things like, I love black cock, right? You know, like, that's, that's like, not yeah. very on brand for them, right? But, like, uh, but it didn't matter because he was, like, a provocateur who was, like, obviously and relentlessly focused on triggering the people that they hate the most. So, like, everything else is forgiven. I think that's, yeah. uh, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Okay. Uh, I am going to uh, see if I can sneak in uh, Scott uh, before I absolutely have to go. Like I said, I, I have to jump on the Zoom call for Feldman by 6.30. But uh, uh, real quick, uh, Scott, what's on your mind? No, it's cool. I, I have I have not read the article yet, so my, my question was unrelated. So I'll, I'll catch you another time. Okay. All right. Yeah, just uh, like the next episode's probably going to be on Sunday, so just, just – like if you call it at the very beginning, I'm happy to take you at the very beginning. So, uh, so yeah, I will. I will talk to you then. I will see everybody then. Left to